This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Ramona McGee, Senior Attorney and Leader of the Southern Environmental Law Center's Wildlife Program. She's in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Since 2015, Ramona has protected Southern Wildlife as an SELC attorney, combining advocacy and policy protective of the region's unique biodiversity. She was born and raised on the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska, where she developed a love for the natural world that inspires her everyday work at SELC. A graduate of Lewis and Clark College and the University of North Carolina School of Law, Ramona has lived in North Carolina since 2009. She now leads SELC's wildlife team as the senior attorney. Uh, so... Uh, let's get started. Welcome, Ramona. It's good to be talking with you back in North Carolina. Hope you're not dying of heat. <laughs> we usually are this time of year. So uh, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on the program. Great. So uh, let's talk about the issues that brought SELC, the Southern Environmental Law Center, into being. What got it started? Sure. Yeah, well, FDLC was founded back in 1986 uh-huh. by an Alabama native named Rick Middleton. And he launched FDLC to focus on protecting the environment here in the South, a region um, largely overlooked or neglected by national environmental organizations. But Rick knew, you know, from his personal experience and his upbringing that this was a really special place and that there was a lot of good work to be done, that it wasn't just a lost cause for curbing pollution and protecting the rich resources here. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how we got started um, three, five years ago. And uh. Rick chose the headquarters to be placed in Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, SELC has now grown to have offices in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, and the District of Columbia. So uh, you're mainly focused on the area that's uh, east of the Mississippi and uh, is, and south of the board of the Mason-Dixon line, I guess. Yeah, roughly that area. Um, but we do take on issues of national importance as well. So mm-hmm. we're we're rooted here in the South, but lots of times that means taking on different fights of national significance. Uh, Uh We've done a lot of work on all the different environmental rollbacks from the previous administration uh, and taken on other nationally significant uh, cases. Uh Do you have a mission statement? We do. It is to protect the basic right to clean air, clean water, and a livable climate to preserve our region's natural treasures and rich biodiversity and to provide a healthy environment for all. And so what are the issues that you prioritize? You know, if it's an environmental issue in the South, we're probably working on it. Uh-huh. We uh, defend and protect our air, water, climate, wildlife, lands, and the people who live here. That requires working at all levels of government, 
Um, so really, we're, we're, like I said before, we're rooted here in the South. We're working closely with the communities here in the South. We're nonpartisan and nonprofit. Um, and we, we work on a lot of complex issues, a lot of local issues. We spend a lot of time thinking about climate change here in our states, both how to mitigate the causes and impacts of climate change, as well as to help communities and ecosystems adapt. Uh, we also have spent a lot of time working to right environmental injustices throughout our region. Again, all of that while working to help defend our air, water, and wildlife. So, so it's, I, it's, a, it's a broad set of work. So I noticed on your website that you have more than 100 attorneys in your 10 offices in six states. That's a lot of people, and it represents a broad spectrum of work. So how do you determine what issues uh, you want to address? Are, do they come to you, or do you go out and search for issues? How do you deal with uh, what you're going to work on? Yeah, that's one of the great benefits of actually living and working here in the South, right? So I, I live in Durham, North Carolina. I work out of our Chapel Hill office. Mm-hmm. So I'm very aware of what's happening in my backyard and beyond here in North Carolina. So that helps us just to be informed, know what's going on, know the greater context, and then helps inform the decisions we make about different issues. We also, by virtue of being here where we work and being here for more than 35 years, have a lot of really strong partnerships. Mm -hmm. So to your question of, like, do folks come to us or do we go out and find the work, it's a little bit of all of the above, but Mm -hmm. we have those really close partners and, again, work closely with the communities here to think about what's going to be the the biggest, most impactful um, solution, really, to whatever issue is, is on the map. Do you have a manager in each office who decides what, whether whether to take on a particular issue? So we, do, we have uh, office directors. We have a whole... Uh, internal management structure that I won't bore folks with. Uh-huh. Um, and then we also have our team leaders. So I'm, I'm our wildlife team leader, which means that I help coordinate our wildlife strategy across the organization. So we, we do work across offices and across program areas and really uh-huh. think carefully about the work we're getting involved in. So what are the, what are the uh, issues that you've been working on? Well, I focus a lot on wildlife, as you might guess. Uh-huh. Uh, over the past several years, I've been working on red wolves, red cockaded woodpeckers, Endangered Species Act regulations, uh, the removal of seasonal restrictions on dredging here at southeastern harbors, um, a pretty wide range. Uh-huh. I also previously did some work opposing transportation projects that were harmful to the environment and to communities, so uh, some large highway fights um, and some coastal issues. Do you have some uh, do you have some problems with biodiversity back there? Uh, are there species that are that are absent that their absence creates problems? You know, yes, 
I imagine so. Um, mm-hmm. we, we certainly do have problems with biodiversity. We have uh, a really remarkable array of biodiversity here in the South. That biodiversity, like much biodiversity across the planet, is threatened by habitat loss and climate change. And so we're seeing species being lost. But to your point of, are we seeing and able to, like, isolate that there's a problem because X species is no longer there? I'm not sure of the best example of that. Do you, does uh, North Carolina have uh, strong laws to protect species? Most of our strong species protections come from the federal level, from the Endangered Species Act and the Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service. Uh, And those really are the bedrock protections for species, Um, especially when we're talking about imperiled species that weren't listing under the Endangered Species Act. There's a whole host of federal laws that protect species beyond the Endangered Species Act. There's the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. There's the Magnuson-Stevens Fisheries Conservation mm-hmm. Act. There's Wildlife Refuge Acts. And even the National Environmental Policy Act and the Administrative Procedure Act all help protect species. So I, uh, I understand that red wolves are one of the really critical species back there. I've seen population numbers that range from 7 to 15. So... Uh, Why don't you just talk about the red wolf issue? I would love to. This is an issue near and dear to my heart, one that I've been working on for seven years now. So you're right that the wild red wolf population numbers somewhere around 10 known animals right now. That's after steadily having more than 100 animals in the population for more than a decade previously. But to to start At the beginning, we're actually going to be celebrating 35 years since the first red wolves were reintroduced into North Carolina. Uh, So red wolves were declared extinct uh, after predator control and habitat loss threatened the species. But at the same time, the Fish and Wildlife Service had the foresight to go out and collect as many of the pure red wolves remaining in the wild and started a captive breeding program. And so back in 1987, the Fish and Wildlife Service released red wolves into eastern North Carolina. Um, And to this day, uh, eastern North Carolina is the only place that you can find a wild population of red wolves. So the reintroduction was a widely acclaimed success. It paved the way for other carnivore reintroductions, including those out west that you're probably more familiar with. And... After years of success and, like I mentioned, of having this large population, things started taking a turn uh, in some of the more recent years. SCLC has been involved with defending the red wolf, taking both state and federal agencies to court over mismanagement. Most recently, we filed a lawsuit back in 2020 challenging the agency's failure to release red wolves into the wild and to uh, resume its stalled-out efforts to manage coyotes. And in January of 2021, we received a court order that required the Fish and Wildlife Service to prepare a plan to resume those releases of red wolves into the wild. So we've, we've been seeing the Fish and Wildlife Service 
resuming releases over the past two years. And those population numbers we were discussing earlier, about roughly 10 known animals, that does not include the wonderful news about a wild red wolf litter that was born this spring, the first wild red wolf litter since 2018. Mm-hmm. So that's something we've all been, been celebrating. So how many are held in, still held in captivity? Uh, somewhere around 250. Wow. And there are only 10 in the wild? Yes, that's right. So what's the and plan? I mean, are they, does Fish and Wildlife in North Carolina have a, have a plan for release in the future? So that's what they're working on. The Fish and Wildlife Service historically pulled from that captive population to, to start the whole reintroduction effort and then historically would periodically release red wolves into the wild from the captive population to the wild population. So that, that's always been the case. It's always been there as this kind of fail-safe and as a, as a support for the wild population. Um, and clearly the wild population right now needs that support. So what's the square mileage area that the red wolves can be found in currently? That's a great question. We don't know the exact territories of the packs that are out in the wild right now, but the designated red wolf recovery area encompasses roughly 1.7 million acres. Mm. I'm not sure what that is in square miles. (laughs) And uh, can they be hunted? No, they are uh, protected as an endangered species. Uh, There is a special rule governing when red wolves may be taken in defense of one's life, livestock, or property. And, And on that note, red wolves are pretty different from the wolves out west, where I know that livestock depredation events can be a real problem. Uh, here, red wolves are much smaller. They're pretty secretive and shy. And fewer than 10 depredation events have been attributed to red wolves over the years, I believe, somewhere in the ballpark of maybe seven to eight. Are they larger or same size or smaller than the wolves out here in the west? They're smaller. They're smaller. They're, they're in between a coyote and a um, gray wolf. Uh-huh. I see. So what, what kind of work do you have to do on behalf of the red wolf? What are you contemplating going forward? Yeah, well, there are a lot of different exciting developments happening with red wolves. So we, we have historically been involved with all facets of um, – of litigation, commenting, uh, influencing different regulations or policy decisions. Right now, the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, will be filing a third release plan in our current litigation. They'll be filing that uh, later this month. They also, we understand, are in the process of preparing a new recovery plan for the Red Wolf. So we're looking forward to reviewing that. And and otherwise, it's a matter of continuing to work with our partners and stakeholders to ensure that we have the red wolves out in the wild, that we, again, are growing that population in the wild in North Carolina um, and protecting the species for generations to come. Well, if they have a recovery plan, they must have a target size that they want to achieve mm. a certain date in the future. 
So there is a recovery plan that already exists that's from several decades ago. Mm -hmm. And that I, I think most of the experts agree that a lot of those population targets there are outdated. That plan had roughly a goal of roughly 220 red wolves in the wild um, across three different wild populations, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully the, the new recovery plan uh, updates that with some of the latest scientific thinking about what's needed to recover a species. I think the area where they're located is close to the Virginia border, isn't it? Do you have expectations that they may migrate over into Virginia? You know, that's such a great question and thought. Um, every now and then we hear rumors of someone thinking that one might have done that, but mm -hmm. to my knowledge, no red wolf has migrated up into Virginia. It's actually a pretty long trek and fairly treacherous for the wolf to be leaving the the federal lands in North Carolina for a variety of reasons. I see. Uh, so I, I don't believe that's happened. Okay, well, let's move on to the red-cockaded woodpecker. Uh, what are you doing in regard to that bird? Sure. So this is another species that has been on the Endangered Species Act list for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, the red-cockaded woodpecker has seen its numbers increase as a result of those endangered species protections and active management, but the species still persists mostly in these small, heavily fragmented populations across the South. Really, the red-cockaded woodpecker depends on southeastern pine forests. In particular, they historically thrived in the South's longleaf pine in ecosystems, which uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with that the longleaf pine is pretty iconic down here. And as a little bit of a, a fun aside, there's a lot of great research about how the red cockaded woodpecker serves as a sort of umbrella species, meaning by protecting the red cockaded woodpecker, uh, we in turn protect all sorts of other species that might otherwise be imperiled. So, which is a big part of why we're We've continued to advocate for this species. As I mentioned, that they've seen some gains in recent decades, and we have worked on red-cockaded woodpeckers for quite a while at SCLC. They've come up in a context of different projects over the years, but most recently we've been spending a lot of time engaging on efforts by the Fish and Wildlife Service to remove those Endangered Species Act protections. Uh, several years ago, we heard some rumors that the agency was trying to remove endangered protections and to fully delist the red-cockaded woodpecker, which was wholly unwarranted. The species has not met its recovery targets for downlisting, let alone delisting. And so we, we started advocating, writing letters to the agency, highlighting how that would be an irresponsible move. And then in 2020, Fish and Wildlife Service proposed to downlist, so not delist, so that, that was, you know, some incremental progress, but still fundamentally the agency proposed to downlist the red-cockaded woodpecker with the corresponding species-specific rule that would undo the protections and remove the Fish and Wildlife Service oversight that had led to some of the gains in the population numbers. So then we push back on that, um, again, using our advocacy tools to highlight the flaws in that proposal, highlighting how 
the species had not met the definition of a threatened species yet, uh, that the agency had not gone through necessary processes for removing protections, um, and ultimately really highlighting how that species-specific rule the agency proposed would not ensure ongoing conservation and recovery of red-cockaded woodpeckers. Some months ago, I talked to uh, a fellow at Dogwood Alliance, and they were focused on the uh, taking of wood for pellets that were shipped overseas. Is that a threat to the forests that are used by the red-cockaded woodpecker? That's a great question. Um, It is a possible threat in the long term is I think maybe the best way to say it. It is not um, right right now the forests being logged for biomass are not ones that are inhabited by red cockaded woodpeckers. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so it, if I can go back real quick, I was getting to the good part of my I know kind of lengthy story please. about this rule. Yeah. Um, so after we highlighted all those problems with the the initial proposed rule, the Fish and Wildlife Service earlier this year issued a revised rule addressing many of those shortcomings that we had highlighted. Still fundamentally, it's proposing to downlist the species, but at least the rule has greater protections for the most part for uh, the red-cockaded woodpecker. And and we're still waiting on a final rule um, or even possibly for the agency to still ultimately abandon efforts to remove protections and just maintain the endangered status. Uh Uh-huh. The, is the is the population near the near what you what's desirable? No, <laughs> Not, yeah. so it's made it's made significant strides, right? Like the yeah. the red cockaded woodpecker, thanks to those Endangered Species Act protections and all the conservation work from different partners, has made recovery gains, but it's still not there yet. The Fish and Wildlife Service's own recovery plan for the species has really detailed recovery targets for different populations, um, and those have not been met for downlisting or for delisting. Is the woodpecker pretty sedentary, or does it uh, migrate? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. It does not migrate. Um, I'm not sure how sedentary they are. They, they certainly use several trees, um, and they burrow these cavities into the trees. They, they require actually really old trees, um, 60 to 80 year old pine trees. Uh, but I don't know for sure about how far they travel. Oh, okay. So you also work on red knots. So let's talk about red knots. Sure. I'm happy to. And as a little clarification, I personally do not. I just want to be sure to give credit okay. where it's due. It's my South Carolina uh, colleagues who have been fighting for red knots and horseshoe crabs. Um, For folks who don't know, the red knot is this amazing migratory bird that goes all across the globe in essence and makes these very brief stopovers at different points, including on the South Carolina coast. Uh, The red knot, when it it stops over, needs to replenish uh, uh, its nutrient stores in order to continue that hard migration. So it's a carefully timed migration, and what the red knot subsists on in South Carolina in particular is horseshoe crab eggs. So the problem in recent years has been declining horseshoe crab 
um, populations, and in particular, uh, harvesting of horseshoe crabs at different places. Mm. So after years of advocacy and litigation, um, in the past couple of years, SELC stopped the commercial harvesting of horseshoe crabs at Cape Romaine National Wildlife Refuge in South Carolina. Uh, as I was mentioning, it's a it's a key stopover place for red knots as well as other migratory birds. So uh, one thing is dependent upon another. Are red knots on the endangered species list? They are. They are listed as threatened on the endangered species oh, list. Uh-huh. And uh, what's their migratory route? Do they uh, are they headed north uh, when they come by, or uh, do they come by in both directions, north and south? I I'll be honest. I'm not sure whether it's both directions or not. Uh-huh. They fly from South America. I think actually, I think they fly from South America to. Cape Romaine, and then continue on to the Arctic, as I'm thinking through. Oh, um, uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what other issues are you working on? What else would you like to talk about? Of course. Um, well, this is another issue that I personally uh, am not leading the charge on, but I, I would love to talk about the North Atlantic right whale. Oh, um, huh? Yeah, so this is a species that in the past um, was hunted to the near brink of extinction and then through conservation efforts and protections was brought back. While it's no longer killed intentionally, there's still ongoing threats from entanglements in commercial fishing gear mm-hmm. and then col- collisions with vessels. Mm. And those those are the two primary threats, and they're again driving the species back to the brink Uh, We're down to fewer than 340 North Atlantic right whales, Mm. making them one of the most endangered whale species on Mm. Earth. And the Southeast, in in particular, is the only place on the planet the whales are known to give birth and raise their young. Mm -hmm. And on that point of reproduction, um, I mentioned there's fewer than 340 of the North Atlantic whales. Uh, Only 70 reproductive females remain in the population, and that's important because that means that they are unable to keep up reproduction rates in order to offset the mortality rates. So it's really important to drive down the threats from commercial fishing gear and collisions with vessels. So what Um, does an attorney with SELC do on behalf of the right whales? Yes, that's great. So um, in the past, we've had a few different... Uh, successes. We we challenged um, certain permits associated with offshore oil exploration in the past, seismic blasting, um, uh, on behalf of the right whale. But right now, we're really focused on this new proposed rule to address the vessel strike threat. Mm. Um, this this has been long awaited. Uh, and it's a new rule that will reduce uh, speeds for different vessels and, by extension, reduce the threat of vessel strikes to North Atlantic right whales. Because slowing down is, is the important part here, is getting those vessels to slow down. So that's that's out right now. That's, that proposed rule is out um, for comment through the end of this month. Uh, and so it's really important that the National Marine Fisheries Service 
here's from the public, here's the support on that, mm-hmm. um, and also that the agency moves quickly to get that in place to ensure that especially those right whale mothers and calves coming to the southeast in the winter um, are protected. Well, Amanda, you won't believe it, but uh, we've just about exhausted our time, so uh, I bet you have a lot more that you could talk about, but we're out of time. And it's been, that flew by. Yep. So thank you very much. So uh, this has been Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association, and our host today, is our, our guest today has been Ramona McGee of the uh, Southern Environmental Law Center. So thanks very much for listening. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to jswilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.